0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg and in this episode we'll be talking about English football at a crossroads as lower league clubs facing extinction plead for a bailout from their wealthier counterparts in the Premier League. If you're a disaster
1: capitalist, this is meat and drink to you. When the animal is on its back and its legs are in the air and it's got its softer underbelly upwards towards you, This is the time to strike.
0: And Julian Assange, founder of WikiLeaks, facing the threat of extradition to the United States from the UK after revealing human rights abuses by the Americans and their allies. He could be sentenced to 175 years in prison.
2: And not just any old prison. There's not even normally a guard on duty in that area because all the people are locked up anyway, so there's no point a guard being there. And she said, you can scream as much as you like, but no one will hear you.
0: Chilling stuff from our reporter, James Dolman, and we'll hear more about Julian Assange later. Before we get cracking, just a reminder that the Byline Times is an independent news source, reporting without fear or favour. We don't have a wealthy backer, we're free of any corporate influence. Sounds good, doesn't it? But how do we do that? Well, it's all down to people like you, who subscribe to our monthly newspaper the Byline Times. It's a great read and sub-start at only £36 a year. Find out more at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Football now, and a crisis in the national game. It's one that ultimately pits global capitalism against community interest and begs questions of government about regulation and oversight of institutions, i.e. football clubs, that millions of people care deeply about. The immediate cause of the crisis is the decision to ban spectators from football grounds because of Covid-19. This has pushed many clubs to the brink of financial collapse. I've been told by people inside the game that as many as 10 or even a dozen clubs could go into administration by Christmas unless there's a bailout. Those most at risk play in the EFL or the Football League, which encompasses the three divisions below the Premier League. They're called the Championship, League One and League Two. The EFL has 72 professional clubs, a strength in depth unmatched by any other nation and many of them represent the so-called Red Wall of traditional Labour voting towns and cities successfully targeted by the Conservatives at the last election. One of them is in Stoke-on-Trent, where Carol Shanahan is co-owner of League Two Port Vale, based in Burslem, an area once defined by the pottery industry and coal mining. What does football mean in a place like that?
3: I think football clubs are... To many, many people, part of their, their belief system, part of their faith, you know, we have people who this is so deep within them. And I think that's the same for, for every club, but particularly the ones that have been going for a very long time. Yeah, you know, virtually everybody at Port Vale will tell me their first game It's usually with their granddad, their uncle, their dad. They can remember walking in. They can remember the bag of crisps. You know, they, they can remember the game and who scored. And it's just part of their life. And if, if someone's going to marry them, then they've got to know that, you know, Saturdays they will be at the match and they will probably want to get married at Vale Park. It's really, really deep we're getting fewer and fewer things that that bring us together and football is one of those things so it builds community and then when there's a crisis like there there has been this summer then it's your football club that you turn to it's your football club that's there for you hence why we've you know we've delivered food to fifty thousand people across stoke-on-trent we're there we bring we bring that pride and that identity into an area where so much of that has been taken away in the past 20 or 30 years when Dalton closed in Burslem and Wedgwood and and all the potteries. All of that ecosystem, that commercial ecosystem around it, so the shops, the barbers, the garages, the pubs, everything, closed. So it's really difficult to keep these areas alive and vibrant. And football clubs are a really, really good way of doing it.
0: Or at least they were, until Covid struck. So whose responsibility is it now to ensure that clubs like Port Vale can continue? The government has been leaning heavily on the Premier League, which, even without a live audience, brings in more than £3 billion a season through TV deals, both global and domestic. EFL clubs, on the other hand, rely almost entirely on supporters coming through the gate. And because none are allowed at the moment, the future for many of those clubs looks bleak. Enter Project Big Picture, supported by two giants of the game, Manchester United and Liverpool. Their plan, which has now been voted down, would have seen EFL clubs receiving £250 million from their wealthier colleagues and a greater share of TV revenues in the future, which all sounds great. But the cash came with more strings than the average symphony orchestra one of the key provisos was a change in voting rights which would have tilted power decisively towards the premier league's so-called big six manchester united manchester city liverpool tottenham hotspur arsenal and chelsea i wrote in the byline times that it would have entrenched the already deep inequalities in the game john nicholson author of can we have our football back a critical commentary on the premier league said smaller clubs were being forced to negotiate with a gun to their head.
1: They are in a, an incredibly vulnerable position right now. If you're a disaster capitalist, this is meat and drink team Situations <laughs> like this. Because when the, the, the animal is on its back and its legs are in the air, and it's got its softer underbelly upwards towards you, this is the time to strike. Really, that is seriously what it is. I feel as though, really, this is a clash of cultures isn't it really it's a clash of what we understand football to be and its role in our kind of everyday life really and uh, what we understand football to be in terms of business and those two things are
0: increasingly at that level becoming very very separate it wasn't always like this and the change when it came didn't happen by accident but by design the EFL the oldest professional league in the world once comprised 92 clubs with long-standing revenue-sharing agreements that protected its less well-off members. But in 1992, that solidarity was smashed by the top 20 clubs who broke away and created a new elite competition, the Premier League. It was established to capitalise on the arrival of satellite TV, New technology that, for the first time, made it possible to charge fans to watch live matches from the comfort of their armchair. On hand to assist with this revolution was Sky, partly owned by Rupert Murdoch, not a man likely to lose much sleep over the creation of more inequality in the world. The Premier League generated unprecedented wealth for its member clubs, and although some was distributed lower down the football pyramid, they kept a far greater proportion of it than ever before to themselves. Because getting into the Premier League is now akin to a lottery win, many clubs below it have wildly overspent in a desperate and ultimately unsustainable bid to get there, leaving them financially exposed even before this current crisis. John Nicholson again. On that first day of the first Premier League season, I didn't realise
1: that football would be locked away behind a paywall forever, and that we would never see a top-flight game without paying money to watch it on television. In reality, everything had changed. But increasingly, as we got into the 2000s, it started to become all about money. And people talked about football as though it was all about money. And so it was shopping, and it wasn't sport at all. It was how many £50 million strikers could you buy? you know, what people's wages are. It may seem strange to people who are perhaps under the age of 35, but for 20, 20 25 years that I followed football, the first 25, 26 years, I don't think I ever talked about money at all. We just took the sport for what it was, and we enjoyed it for what it was. We weren't we were obsessed with what the club owned or how much it could buy, we took it as our local institution. We went and watched, and then we went home. The money is the problem. And once you've actually analyzed the money, once you get to the core of the problem and and understand why it is as it is, then you can see why it's corrupted
0: the sporting integrity, really, of, of the game. As an example of what John means, across the 1980s, the last decade before the Premier League, 13 different clubs occupied the top four end-of-season places in the Old First Division. In the last decade, just seven different clubs finished in the top four of the Premier League. This isn't just of academic interest. Finishing in the top four earns you qualification for the European Champions League, bringing with it even greater TV revenues and sponsorship money, thus increasing even further the gap between the haves and the have-nots. The Premier League's wealth has attracted a motley crew of global benefactors and businessmen, some of them more reputable than others. Check out an article I wrote about it for the Byline Times. There's Roman Abramovich, the Russian oligarch who owns Chelsea. Manchester City are backed by an investment fund linked to the oil state of Abu Dhabi. The two prime movers of Project Big Picture, Manchester United and Liverpool, are US-owned through the Glazer family and the Fenway Sports Group, respectively. Charlie Methven, co-owner of League One Sunderland, describes himself as a capitalist and supported Project Big Picture as a means of helping those lower down the football pyramid.
4: These TV revenues we're talking about are chiefly TV revenues generated by the Big Six. That, that is a fact. And I say that as a co-owner of probably one of the two or three biggest clubs outside of the Big Six I still recognise that the global audience for Liverpool and Man United and Arsenal is seven or eight times that of the global audience for Sunderland Football Club. And that's Sunderland being a very big club. That's just a reality of the situation. Those clubs have built international fan bases over a period of decades. And effectively, the rest of the pyramid is living off the international fan bases that those clubs have constructed. And the job of the rest of the pyramid is to try and extract as much money as possible from the global TV revenues generated by the Big Six to distribute throughout the rest of the pyramid, to enable the rest of the pyramid to survive, sustain, go up and down, and if they get on a really good run, to get up into the Premier League, and on the pitch at least, compete against the Big Six. Not compete on a constant basis, on a sort of long-term basis. They won't be able to do that until they build fan bases, which are as big as the Big Six, which is a challenge. But at least it enables a scenario where a club that's currently in League One could perfectly reasonably think that if they get things right on the pitch, that they could enter the Championship and run on a sustainable basis, that they could get promoted from the Championship, enter the Premier League and run on a sustainable basis, and if they get things right on the pitch, like Leicester did a few years ago, like Sheffield United did last year, that they can can compete against the top six. So for me, it's a long overdue, serious look at how those TV revenues are distributed. And if in return, the big six want some codifications and formalisation of what the reality already is, which is that they effectively control the whole show. Well, I'm afraid that, that if you're against that, that stable door has, has been open for an awful long time. The horse is over the horizon.
0: Project Big Picture has now been rejected by Premier League clubs themselves. And instead of £250 million, clubs in League One and League Two have now been offered a bailout of just £50 million. But the tensions revealed by the controversial rescue package won't go away. Some of the bigger clubs see their future playing in an expanded European competition and their owners owe zero loyalty to the roots of English football. Given the importance of clubs to local communities, isn't this something the government should be addressing? Carol Shanahan of Port Vale again.
3: I could put a very good argument which says it's government that has made these rules which I can only see as politically motivated I can't see there's no logical sense for why we can't have some fans restricted but I can't see why I can go to a non-league match locally and there'll be 400 people in there and yet I can't have anybody through my gate and so given it's the government's decision then I would say that there's an argument which says that they should then cover the consequence of that decision because they have done with the arts and they have done in different areas.
0: But Vale Park isn't the Royal Opera House, football isn't ballet and there's been no offer of taxpayer-funded assistance for the national sport. One senior Tory backbencher though has seized the initiative. MP Damien Collins is a former chair of the Department for Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee and he's put forward his own plan for a taxpayer-funded bailout of football. Clubs who accepted this financial support would have to allow supporters or community reps onto their board of directors and submit to a tough new football finance regulator to curb the poor management and chronic overspending in the game.
5: Coronavirus has brought that to a head. It's not necessarily the cause of it, and therefore it wouldn't be the right thing, I think, just to give a blank cheque to clubs. In return for support, there should be much greater oversight about how they spend their money to make sure they're operating within the the rules of the league, and in particular, the rules that cap the amount of money they can spend on players' salaries. It wouldn't be compulsory. Clubs could seek finance elsewhere if they could find it. But for clubs that wanted support from this fund, the strings attached to it would be accepting that they would come under the oversight of this financial authority for football and that the money would be given in return for a stake in the club which could then be acquired by the community. The money that's in football principally resides in the Premier League and by the time you get down to leagues, League One and League Two, the clubs have relatively little income. Almost all of what they earn goes out the door on players' salaries. They get very little in terms of broadcasting money. What they really are is community assets and in some ways Coronavirus has really underlined that because the clubs without their fan base, without their local support are nothing, they can't survive off other forms of revenue. And that's why they're so distressed. But I think what part of the solution to this problem now should be to say, we need money to help bail these clubs out of the problems they've got themselves into. Part of the problem has been caused by the conditions of the coronavirus set by the government. So that's restricting their ability to make money to pay their bills. But the other reason it's been caused is because I think a degree of financial mismanagement, which is not seen the clubs put money by for a rainy day, give themselves some sort of security, they're run really on a break-even basis. Many of them really run as loss-making organisations. And that has to change. We have to put it on a more sustainable footing. So I think by providing finance in this way, we could also have a real moment of reform for governance of football clubs.
0: Damien Collins Unfortunately, the government has shown no appetite for his radical solution to the short-term crisis and long-term ills assailing football. They do talk a good game. The Conservative 2019 manifesto included the pledge of a fan-led review of football. But 2020 is different, and however much we wish it hadn't happened, coronavirus has given ministers a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to deal with the inequalities and poor governance in football. Let's hope that this time they don't kick it into the long grass. My name's Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to the Byline Times, and I write about this sort of stuff for the website and our monthly newspaper. You can subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now Julian Assange, the controversial founder of WikiLeaks, who is awaiting the outcome of his recent extradition hearing at the Old Bailey. If he loses his case and is sent to the United States, he faces charges under the Espionage Act that could see him jailed for 175 years. Assange's crime, in the eyes of federal prosecutors anyway, was to publish classified information on his WikiLeaks site about US military operations in Iraq and Afghanistan and which related to the war on terror. Assange was given asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy in London in 2012, originally to avoid extradition to Sweden over a sexual assault case which has since been dropped. But that asylum was revoked in 2019 and he was arrested. James Dolman reported on the trial for the Byline Times. He's been telling me more about what Assange
5: did.
2: Well, what Assange did, he, I think the, the most, the biggest one for us is the Afghan war logs. Um, Chelsea Manning, who was his main source an American service in Iraq, had access to a computer system. And part of her job was to collate all the reports coming out from all the different units in Iraq and producing a summary of all the events. And the release of those war logs revealed An extra 15,000 civilian deaths that no one knew about until that point. It revealed the reality of day-to-day operations. I don't know if you've ever seen the collateral murder video, which is a horrific video of an American helicopter murdering journalists and civilians in Iraq. had an electrifying impact around the world. So I think they saw him as as a a real threat because he obviously had a very high-level source somewhere. He was getting a lot of information and he was releasing it. So I think the Americans did see him as a threat. But it's important to remember that in 2013, the Obama administration made a a decision not to prosecute him because of what they called the New York Times question. Because not only WikiLeaks had published this information, the New York Times had published it, the Guardian had published it. So quite clearly, while sections of the American establishment saw him as a threat, they weren't willing to prosecute him. And that decision was made in 2013.
0: Yet at the same time now, there is this request to extradite him from the UK.
2: Yeah, well, this comes up when the Trump administration comes in. Suddenly the whole thing is restarted. The investigation is restarted. The grand juries are called. A sealed indictment is created. So this only happens when Trump comes in.
0: And the crimes that he alleges the United States was responsible for included the extradition of a German citizen, Khaled El Masri. Just talk me through that.
2: Mr Masri was a German citizen on holiday in Macedonia when he was kidnapped, essentially, by the police, put in prison, He says tortured, he was then flown to Afghanistan to a secret military prison where he was kept for four months interrogated constantly and then the Americans realised that they had the wrong person but they didn't tell him this, they just put a hood on him, put him in an aircraft during which he says in his statement he assumed he was going to be executed flew him back to Europe, dumped him and he had to wander around to find a police officer who would take him to Germany it turns out he was in uh, Albania I think He had to go to the German embassy, but they flew him home. His family had left. They thought he was dead because he'd been gone for six months. No one knew where he was. So really, it was a man who was just picked up as part of the war on terror. What WikiLeaks proved was that the German government had the names of 13 CIA agents who did this. And were going to ask America to extradite them to Germany. And America, in these secret cables revealed by WikiLeaks, told the German government, there'll be very, very serious consequences if you do that. And the German government backed off.
0: It's really interesting, isn't it? When we think of Woodward and Bernstein, the journalists responsible for bringing down Richard Nixon, for putting into the public domain the president's secrets, they're lauded as heroes. Why isn't there this immediate empathy with Assange? It's it's a curious marker of the times, perhaps.
2: I think so, too. There was Daniel Ellsberg, who I'm sure you know, the man who released the Pentagon Papers, which helped end the Vietnam War was one of the witnesses at the trial. And he actually drew that comparison. He said, all the people who used to call me a traitor now call me a patriot. Not because they've changed their minds, because they see it as a way to stick to beat Julian Assange with. And what's the difference? The prosecution say that Assange wasn't a journalist. A journalist's job is to get the information, look at it, analyse it, take out any information that might harm an individual. For example, some of the cables he released name people who'd given information to the US government, US military in Afghanistan. So the American military say this is just irresponsible. It's not journalism. It's just thrown out information, some of which can cause actual harm to people. Simply by putting it out there in an unfiltered
0: way online through WikiLeaks. Exactly. And the source of this material was Chelsea Manning. Chelsea Manning is the person that you describe as the hero in this piece, and someone who has already suffered years in jail for leaking this information. Tell me more about Chelsea Manning.
2: Chelsea Manning, I think, was 22 years old, a a young sergeant based in an intelligence unit in Iraq. As I said, it was her job to collate the information coming in from all the different sources. And she had access to a database. Uh, And she saw what was coming across her desk, reports of crimes, reports of murders. She tried to alert her superiors, and her superiors just ignored her. Nothing to do with us. So she got in contact with WikiLeaks and uh, started releasing the information to them. She was arrested and court-martialed, sentenced originally to 30 years in jail. But Obama, his very last day in office, Obama commuted her sentence to time served, which I think was about seven years by then. She then was rearrested as part of this renewed investigation I mentioned under Donald Trump because she refused to testify against Assange at a grand jury and did another year in prison. Again, refusing to testify, widely known as she tried to commit suicide in prison rather than testify. And finally, when she was released, the judge had to release her because the grand jury had unconvened, so she could not be in contempt of a grand jury which didn't exist anymore. But she, he gave up. He charged her two hundred fifty thousand dollars in legal fees for her own arrest, for her own arrest and trial, money that she she managed to crowdfund within twenty four hours.
0: Yeah, fascinating. And again, in terms of a marker of a change in times, you mentioned Daniel Ellsberg, the U.S. Marine who leaked the Pentagon Papers. He said that the accounts of war crimes in Vietnam that he released, which essentially showed that the US government had been lying to its public, had only been previously seen by a small handful of people. That wasn't the case with the information that Assange
2: leaked. Now, to me, that was one of the most shocking parts of the case. The database that Chelsea Manning had access to, over 100,000 people had access to. And as Ellsberg said... What this shows you after nine eleven is the normalization of murder, the normalization of war crimes. These aren't particularly secret anymore. It's information that very low level people have access to.
0: What was it like in court, by the way? How was Assange? Did you get good sight of him?
2: I don't know if you know the old Bailey. It's a very secure court where terrorism trials happen and things. So the the back of the court was a glass, a sealed in dock with glass fronting. So Assange was sat behind the glass, usually wearing a white face mask with a security guard on either side of him. If he wanted to communicate with his lawyers, he had to sort of tap the glass and speak through a small gap in the glass to speak to his lawyers. And how did he look? Calm? Agitated? Mostly calm. It's very difficult to tell when someone's wearing a face mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he did make the odd intervention. The guy you mentioned earlier on, the German citizen, was kidnapped when it, the decision was made that he would not be allowed to testify. Assange actually spoke from the dock and said, I don't want to see a victim of war crime censored like this. So he did make the occasional interjection. They were all very sensible interjections and things like that. So he certainly seemed to be following proceedings. In fact, the prosecution used that against him at one point, saying, well, Mr. Assange, how can you say he's got a psychiatric issue when he's clearly following the proceedings so well and making such useful interventions? And the
0: claim that he has a psychiatric issue is presumably part of his defence, part of the reason that his team is saying that he, he should not be extradited to the United States.
2: That's correct. But certainly part of the defence cases, Mr Assange's mental health would be under very severe strain if he was extradited, especially after what we heard about the prison conditions he's facing. Tell me
0: a little bit about those as well, because he'd been some kind of super prison if he was taken to the United States.
2: We heard a number of witnesses. The most striking was a woman who was a former warden of the Metropolitan Correction Centre in New York, and part of her prison was set aside for prisoners that are under what are called the euphemistic Special Administrative Measures, or SAMS. Sounds very benign, but Special Administrative Measures are designed for people who they think are a threat to national security, who may still hold information. So a prisoner on SAMS is not allowed to interact with any other prisoner at all. They're locked in a cell she described as the size of a parking space. 23 hours a day, the only exercise they get is to be taken one hour a day and put in a different cell for an hour before being put back in the original cell. She said that the only furniture in the cell was a toilet and a shelf with a mattress on it, and that, to me, the most striking moment of her testimony, when she said, there's not even normally a guard on duty in that area, because all the people are locked up anyway, so there's no point a guard being there, and she said, you can scream as much as you like, but no one will hear you. That's chilling, isn't it, James? When will Julian Assange learn his fate? January the 4th for this stage, but it's important to remember that there is an appeals process to the High Court and possibly even the Supreme Court, so it's possible that whatever way it goes, we could be looking at another hearing on the issue at six months, this time at the High Court. What's at stake here? It really shocks me how some journalists don't understand how dangerous this is for us. Essentially, Assange is being accused of encouraging Chelsea Manning to give him documents. That's essentially what he's charged with. Now, Nikki Hager, who's a New Zealand investigative journalist, very famous in New Zealand, he po- he pointed out that if any source comes to you with a story and says to you, I've got a great story, he exposed war crimes in Afghanistan as well, the first thing he says, well, do you have a document? Do you have something you can show me to confirm your story? And essentially that's what Julian Assange did. But now, and it's what any journalist would do, he also pointed out that journalists don't sit at home and wait for things to drop through the letterbox. They go out and try and find sources. They encourage sources. Now, Essentially, if this case goes through and Assange is convicted, that criminalises all investigative journalism, except sitting in your house hoping something drops through the door. I think, to me, that's the most dangerous part of this, this case. Whatever your views on Assange, if you value investigative journalism, this case is very concerning.
0: James Dolman there, and you can read more from James at Byline Times. Don't forget, we're not reliant on any media mogul for our financial backing. We don't bow the knee to any corporate interest. We rely on people like you, as subscribers, and a newspaper subscription for the Byline Times, and it's a fabulous monthly newspaper as well, costs just £36. So please help us if you can. Go to bylinetimes.com to subscribe. That's bylinetimes.com. I'll see you again in a fortnight. My name's Adrian Goldberg. Thank you very much indeed for listening.